Again, I'll begin reading at verse 10 of Haggai chapter 2. On the 24th, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by, con <clears throat> by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares Yahweh, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of Yahweh, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares Yahweh. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares <clears throat> Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares Yahweh, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please do be seated. <clears throat> so two messages have already been delivered to God's people. That they've returned from exile and they've been in the process now of, of rebuilding the temple. Though uh, they had let it sit for quite a few years without doing much of anything to it. But now they have begun again as we saw after the first uh, two messages, especially the first one, to encourage them to get on with it, uh, which they apparently did, as we read here. And then they were further encouraged in that, as we saw last time, um, in the second sermon that was delivered, the second message that was delivered through Haggai uh, by the Lord. And now we come to the third and the fourth. And both of them are delivered on the same day. The There was a... Uh, a uh, about a, a month and a half that went by after the first sermon to the second. And in the second one, you'll notice in chapter 2, verse 1, that was the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. And now we're on the 24th day of the ninth month. So we're two months later. So we can see kind of the general time spread. And then, as you probably noticed in verse 20, you had the, the time stamp again. Uh, the uh, on the 24th day of the month, it came uh, shortly after the first one on that same day. So we're looking at those last two messages here in one. The first one uh, from from chapter 10 on through chapter or uh, chapter 10, verse 10 on through verse 19 is the first sermon, and it's 
generally delivered to the people. Uh, everyone's included in this, including the leadership. But the last one, beginning of verse 20 to the end, is specifically delivered to the leadership and has some things to say. The Lord has some things to say specifically that are uh, remarkable foreshadowing of what the Lord's plans are in regards to redeeming his people. So we'll take a look at that at that uh, time when we get there. The messages that have already been brought are about the, uh, the, the Lord is encouraging his people to, as you remember, to get their priorities straight when it came to the building of God's house. You know, um, and it's wonderful that the, the people at that time took it to heart and began to work. But we also noted in the last week that as they looked upon it, it didn't look like much. Certainly nothing like Solomon's, the glories of Solomon's temple. The Lord asked them, you know, you, 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 you old folks out there, do you remember what it was like? What does this look like to you? I mean, this looks pitiful uh, in uh, comparison. And I'm sure it did from that standpoint. But the Lord, as you remember, was trying to help them understand that the glory was not about the trappings. The glory was about the Lord himself being present. So a couple of months later, um, we, we get along and we can expect, though nothing is said about the actual progress on the temple. After a couple of months, they certainly would have made some. There is a reference here before stone was laid on stone. Uh, so the Lord's aware that the building progress is going on. Those of you that have lived in the middle of renovations or additions on your houses, one of you right now is going through that uh, lovely experience. And you look at it and it seems like it takes absolutely forever. Are we ever going to finish this? Is it ever going to get done? And you had in your mind when, you know, you had the blueprints, you had the drawings, you had the things in your mind about what this was going to look like. And you might look at what is happening now and go, you know, that doesn't really kind of add up to the glorious vision that I had when this all started. Because uh, that's kind of the way we work. We, we, we get motivated by having this grand vision. And then when we try to bring it about, Sometimes uh, we get discouraged because we're not able to make it quite as grand, maybe, as we thought it would be to begin with. And certainly, during this time, it would seem that not only is there some discouragement, but there's some additional work that needs to be done, not so much on the building, but upon their own hearts. I mean, they've, they've, there were externals there that were in place, but still not a lot was, uh, not, not really, uh, uh, they hadn't finished it yet. Uh, and it wasn't what they were, what they were uh, hoping to be as fast as it would be. And I want you to think about that. What happens when things don't move along as quickly as we would like? What are we tempted to do? Cut corners, uh, do the quick route. Um, or just go, well, what's the point? It's never going to get done, or it's not going to be done right, so why, do I, why am I even caring? And there seems to be, perhaps, implied in what the Lord is saying to the people here in the last half of chapter 2, that 
Perhaps some of that is going on in the hearts of the people. There's still something wrong. The, the initial problem that the Lord dealt with in that first message three months prior, there seems to be some lingering remnants of those sins, uh, which tells us something is not so much about the, this passage itself, but just about ourselves, does it not? It kind of reveals the reality that uh, uh, just a one admonition uh, is typically not sufficient for us. We have to be told again and again and again and again uh, that uh, of, of who the Lord is and what he requires of us and calling us to account for our actions, calling us to account for our thinking. And certainly the Lord is doing that here. These two messages, essentially, one delivered to the people in general and one to the leadership, is essentially saying, your, your work for God isn't finished just because you've got some of the externals in place. You know, when I think about our congregation here, our church here, the Lord has allowed us to do some amazing things here, some wonderful things, some things that are very precious to us in terms of uh, the, what we've been able to do on the building and different uh, ministries in the community and outreach and testimony and all those things are great. And we can look at it and we can look around, even in our case, we're not in the middle of a building program like they were, so we might even be tempted to go even a step further and go, hey, we got it, it's great, it's good. Now we can just sit back on our laurels and think that that's enough. But it isn't. There's more work to do. And not surprisingly, that work begins with the fact that there's more sin to deal with. That all of us are continuing to wrestle with that, and certainly they were as well. In verses 10 through 14, that is the, the, the uh, main emphasis of those verses. There's interesting questions. Okay, go to the priest and say, all right, well, if you've got some, you've got some meat that's been designated as holy, and uh, you, you, you tuck it up in the fold of your garment, I know most of us don't nearly generally take our, our, our raw meat, fold it up in our clothes and take it with us, but uh, that's what they were doing. And as they would go along with that, if they should happen to brush up against something else, would that suddenly magically make all that stuff holy? And the priests go, no. And they're right. Absolutely right. It doesn't. It doesn't. But what if, you know, they were unclean and because of touching a dead body, gives the example here, and they went and touched all these things. Would that make all those other things unclean? And the priest rightly answered, yes, it would. Because you're defiled now, you're defiling these other things. And he said, what in the world is going on there? Why is he asking those questions? What's the point? Well, a couple of things here, I think, are in view. The main one, from in verses 10 through 13, is that your doctrine is straight, they gave the right answers. They knew what God's law said. But their thinking was not straight. Their thinking was not right. It was sinful. Uh, turn, if you will, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7. In verse 3, we read these words. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. The people were getting excited. Oh, we're going to have the temple. Oh, the temple's here. But what did the presence of the temple ever actually accomplish for Israel during the time of its existence? Beyond the fact that the Lord put his presence there and his name there, did the presence of the temple there prevent them from going into idolatry? It didn't, did it? Did the presence of the temple prevent them from practicing immorality? It didn't. Did the presence of the temple prevent them from acting out of pride and arrogance and trying to be like all the nations around them? It didn't. But they were sure proud of that temple. And now they're building another temple. And the Lord is saying, just because you're building a temple, just because you're doing something holy unto me, doesn't mean that everything else around you gets made holy. The problem is that your own internal sin that corrupts everything, that's the second half of that question. So he's warning them about the, the, the sin of their own hearts, the sin of their rebellion, the sin of their arrogance, the sin of their um, idol idolatrous tendencies to look to some other gods besides Yahweh, King of Israel, for their deliverance, for their salvation, for their provision, ultimately and for their ultimate um, redemption. So their doctrine was straight, but they were thinking that, well, you know, as long as we've got this here, as long as we've, isn't it great? As long as we've got this little church here, we're set. We're, we're God's servants. We're going to be able to just, you know, really rock this town for Jesus Christ because we've got, look at this wonderful place we have. And this is a wonderful place. And the Lord has used it as a testimony to the community for which we rejoice. But just having a nice building and the trappings of external religion don't cut it. They don't keep us from sin. And in fact, uh, they uh, can easily be destroyed and shown to be of no effect, just as that original temple was of Solomon, because we can corrupt it if we tolerate sin in our own hearts and condone it uh, around us. So, yeah, we may have good doctrine, we may have good, uh, you know, external practices and all of that. But if you're thinking that somehow that's just going to be what keeps you, um, you're, you're not thinking biblically. So the second aspect that's revealed here, back in the book of Haggai, uh, verse 14, Haggai answers them after the priests give their answers. And he says, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares Yahweh, and so with every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. So the service, they are offering it. They're bringing it unto the Lord, but this is a frequent a frequent um, complaint that the Lord has against his people throughout the prophets is that while your, your feet are pointed in the right direction, your heart is far from me. That you're going through all the motions and you're saying all the words, but you're really not mine. You really are walking in rebellion against me. So 
the service was faithful, but the Lord says your offering, on the other hand, is defiled. Uh, turn uh, to uh, another one of the uh, minor prophets. Uh, this uh, would be Amos. A few books prior to Haggai. In the book of Amos, uh, chapter 5, I want to pick up reading at verse 21, which tells, uh, this is a passage that's probably familiar to you, but it describes in vivid language what the Lord thinks about empty external religion. Okay? He says in verse 21 of Amos 5, I hate I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your bird offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. The Lord will execute justice upon his people who bring defiled offerings. So it's saying, Lord, like Cain, I'm bringing you all the things that I think are great. And the Lord doesn't accept them. And we have no cause to complain if uh, we experience judgment at his hands when, if we are harboring sin in our hearts while going through the motions of external religion. Israel struggling. I mean, they... They, you know, you'd think that the exile would have cured them. And in some ways, I've heard people say, yeah, well, Israelites never returned to idolatry after the exile. So externally, they were cured of it. But the Lord's point has always been what's really happening in the heart. And even though they weren't necessarily following after Baal anymore, they were still worshiping the God of themselves and their own understanding and their own Holiness and their own, extra, you know, faithfulness to practice uh, what they believe God was calling them to do, rather than actually trusting God Himself. You compare that with again back in Jeremiah seven, um, verses five through seven, where the Lord uh, says, "If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place. You know, this idea of drawing God's people to his promised uh, the, the promised land to their inheritance uh, and the threat of scattering them if they went after other gods is a frequent theme, is it not, throughout the Old Testament. We kind of lose sight of that a little bit in the New Testament, but we shouldn't. Uh, and, and neither should have Israel at that time because they had been caused to come back to dwell in the land now they had conquerors, and then over a period of time, what would happen to Israel? They would be scattered again, and only until 1947, uh, when things started to gel back together and statehood took place, did the, uh, did the Jewish people be able to come back together. 
What that should have been telling the people during Jesus' day and the days that followed, the Jewish people at that time, is, you know, the Lord said he was going to scatter us if we were after, going after other gods. They, they were saying, we're not worshiping other gods, and yet the Lord is scattering us. Why? Whereas covenant people, that, that was a threat. Maybe there's a different kind of God that we're going after. Maybe we need to pay attention to. Again, they weren't bowing before Baal or Molech or any of those, or the Asherah again. But they were worshiping, as so often we do as well, the God of our own imagination and not receiving him as he revealed himself in his word. Well, in Haggai, the Lord is saying, hey, you've got some more things to deal with. Don't get too confident and too cocky that because you've now built, you're building this temple that now everything is, is swell and you have no other further problems to worry about and, and your hearts are right before me just because you're building this thing. No, that's not the case. There's more sin to root out. So there's, there's more to do in that respect. But I'm thankful that the psalm doesn't end there because if it did or the psalm, the, uh, the, the uh, prophecy doesn't end there. If it did, it would be pretty discouraging because uh, how, how are we all doing with rooting out all that sin in our hearts and lives? Anybody have any more to do? Yeah. And it's going to be a constant battle, is it not? Hopefully, as we're sanctified with more and more victories as we go along and becoming less and less sinful and more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, the battle is there and continues to be so. I'm thankful that this prophecy ends with a promise of blessing. It really starts there in verse uh, 15. Now consider then from this day onward, and that from this day forward, it gets repeated a couple of times in here, doesn't it? Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you get along? In other words, before you started this project, how were things happening? And he kind of goes back to what he talked about in chapter 1. Your sowing produces a meager harvest. Blight, mildew, things, aren't, things are not coming together. Um, in chapter 1 also, we talked about those fleeting wages. You put... You put uh, your money in a bag with holes and it just kind of pours out uh, that vivid image there and the all your expectations what your hopes and everything that you were looking for all you got really was disappointment and that's re, uh, revisited here this is what I did to you I struck you he says in verse 17 and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail yet you still didn't return to me now he says, I, I brought judgments upon you. And by the way, all those judgments are not out of the blue somewhere. Those are judgments that God said back when Moses was talking to them in, uh, in establishing the nation and the old covenant terms of that relationship, that if they, if they disobeyed God and they walked after other, other gods, that um, the work of their hands would come to nothing. And it would be judgment until... They repented and returned to their God. So the Lord says, you had all these expectations. You're coming ready to get full and you didn't get it because you were being judged for your sins. But now, uh, since the day the foundation of the Lord was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? 
Yep, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. So it may look like, yep, you've been judged. We're struggling. It's difficult. But the Lord says, from this point on, I will bless you. And that determination, though the hand of his chastening has been heavy, there's a determination on his part to bless his people. And for that, I am uh, just rejoice. And look at the nature of the blessing that starts, he wraps up the thought um, with the people and then shifts um, uh, by saying, I will bless you. And in, in effect, just saying all that, all those other things are going to be taken care of, blessing you with increase instead of being um, experiencing the loss and the, the, the uh, famine and the lack of things. He will bless you with increase in spite of appearances. You remember that story in 1 Corinthians 17? It's one of my favorite stories of the widow of Zarephath who was prepared to take the last, in a time of famine, was prepared to take the last of her meal, the last of her oil, make a few cakes, eat it, and then starve to death. That's basically what her expectation was. But the prophet comes to her and says, um, hey, by the way, um, I'm hungry. Feed me what you have. <laughs> Which, when you look at it, it's like, it's kind of a cheeky thing to say. But you need to think about the customs of the day, the culture of the day. If you had a guest, it didn't matter if you went without, the, a guest was served. And so he, was, he wasn't, he, even from a social, it wasn't a social faux pas like it would be for us. Uh, if someone came into our house and said, oh, by the way, I'm hungry. I don't care that you're starving. Please feed me. Uh, which is kind of what he says here. He says, just feed me what you have. And she's like, okay. So she does. And what happens to her supply? In spite of all appearances, during the entire rest of that famine, period of famine, she never ran out of oil, never ran out of meal. Every time she went to get it, there it was. Miraculous provision on the Lord, uh, by the Lord to her. She acted out of faith to receive God's servant. And the Lord blessed her here in the same kind of vein the Lord is saying don't pay attention to appearances I will give you the increase I will bless you it comes out of the character of our God that is revealed by the psalmist in Psalm 30 where the psalmist says his anger is but for a moment his favor is for life weeping may endure for a night but joy comes in the morning. So our Lord is determined to bless his people and he will bring us into our desired haven. But then in verse 20, it's a new message that comes. And while there's certainly, clearly there's application for the entire nation, but he's specifically now addressing Zerubbabel and has a word for him that of course will have in Incredible implications for the entire uh, nation and indeed for us as well. And because this, this last section uh, of the message here goes far beyond just 
Israel and their current situation. Are they going to be able to live in the land? Are they going to be able to enjoy all this, the the fruits of all this work that they're doing on the temple? And uh, are they going to be able to be there uh, and experience God's blessing instead of his judgment upon their crops and their livelihoods and everything else? Those things were there, but this last little section turns this from being a provincial letter of encouragement to having uh, incredible application, not only for them, but for us and for all succeeding generations until our Lord returns. So let's see what we have here. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day. So a little bit later that day, told him to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. We referred to this a little bit last week, but uh, kind of uh, expand on it a little bit more as we go along here at this point. Part of the blessing that is promised is not just uh, a greater ease because he's going to provide for all of our daily needs. We know that that promise is there. We delight in that promise. But there's more to God's kingdom than bread and drink, is there not? There's more to God's kingdom than the physical, uh, material blessings that are around us. Though certainly all these good gifts, the Lord knows what we have need of them and he provides for us. And it's a glorious and wonderful thing. But he promises Zerubbabel something here uh, that uh, should speak to our uh, comfort, not just within our homes, but also in the sense of living in a land of safety. You know, here in the U.S., because we've got two big oceans on either side of us, uh, somewhat isolated, um, we've we haven't had to experience what many nations that are surrounded by other nations have experienced throughout, throughout world history of constantly being wondering when they're going to be overrun. I realize there's different ways to overrun a nation, and I think we're in the midst of that uh, to some degree at this point. Um, but nonetheless, it's not something that we're used to thinking about, is my point. Israel was very much <laughs> in that mindset because they, were const- they had constantly been overrun, constantly been been uh, they'd just come out of exile after being uh, nearly uh, wiped out entirely by um, Babylon and Assyria. And now they've recovered, but there's still hostile nations around. They know that people are not there, that uh, I mean, there, aren't, there aren't that many nations around that really think all that highly of them and uh, would love to have that land back. Certainly that that whole area continues to be a war zone, does it not? But the Lord is saying, I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to shake up the nations. I'm going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the earth. Now, what is he talking about? Well, I think just in general, he's basically saying we have this promise. Part of the blessing is that your enemies will be brought into subjugation. That God himself will overthrow both his and our enemies, as the catechism puts it. 
as, our, as he is our king. This is something that had been prayed for. The psalmist prays in Psalm 143, in your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. So when you look at these, this what the Lord says he's going to do, he says he's about to do it. And most commentators throughout uh, church history have looked at this passage and, and, and thought that, that there's, there is certainly a timeline here that's involved. It's not just a, a wishful thinking, but really that the Lord is serious about, um, in his mind anyway, uh, that the, this shaking of the nations would take place soon. Well, if you think about uh, that, the, the time between the exile and the return and the Lord Jesus Christ is a, the, about 400 silent years, more or less. But you have, um, you know, a, a few centuries in there where nothing seems to happen. So the Lord misspeak here. There, we, from from uh, this particular time when the rebuilding of the temple and so on took place, there were no more great uh, um, conflicts that overran Israel at that time. There was skirmishes and smaller things that took place, but nothing like what had happened before, and certainly nothing that seemed to be universal through, you know, through uh, the kingdoms of the earth. So what's he talking about? It's not just a physical kingdom that's involved here, is it? I believe, particularly in light of what we see him saying to Zerubbabel as the signet ring, which I'll get to in a second, that Zerubbabel is is really being used as kind of a, a type, a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come. He talks about the, the glories that will be in that place. And certainly Christ would step foot, as we mentioned last time, would step foot within the environs of what temple, of Zerubbabel's temple remodeled by Herod. And in a big way. And the Lord Jesus Christ would be there. But what, uh, what enemies are brought under subjection by our God? When he shakes up the kingdoms of the earth. How do you, how do you shake up a kingdom? With, with, and I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here. Because uh, I don't want everybody's minds just going off and dwelling on our current political situation. <laughs> um, we just had a, well, not too long ago, we had a quote-unquote peaceful transfer of power. Uh, you put peaceful in quotation marks because of all of the peaceful protests and so on and things that have occurred since then. But nonetheless, as far as the actual transition of power and someone else's assuming office and so on. But let me ask you this. Um, did the foundations of this nation get shaken when that transfer of power took place? Absolutely it did. 
and I think most of us here would agree, shaken in a very negative way. Um, they were shaken in the prior, by the prior administration in a different direction. That, that's what happens when you have a transition of power. Things get shaken. Things get uh, moved as changes are made. And the Lord is saying, I am going to shake up not just one nation, not just one kingdom, but the nations of the earth, the kingdoms of this earth. The foundations are going to be shaken. When were the foundations of the earth shaken? When Jesus Christ, the King, came to this world and turned all other and, and put all other kingdoms in their proper perspective, which they have ever since, and even before, under the under uh, under. Uh, God's rule from day one. Man, in his fallen condition, has fought against the king. Jesus came and said, um, I didn't come to judge here at this point yet, but realize that my teachings, the truth of, the, of God, is what will turn nation against nation, people against people, husband against uh, wife, parents against children, children against parents, it will bring division because God's truth does that in the midst of a wicked generation that doesn't want to hear it. Some will believe by his grace and others will not. And the kingdoms have been shaken ever since. Because when God steps in and works among men, things happen. And that's what the Lord is talking about here. And he's talking about subjecting enemies, is he not? Destroying the strength of the kingdom and the nations and overthrowing the chariots and their riders. These pictures of the wealth was in their, was in their, uh, uh, their chariots and their horses and their soldiers and all of that. And the Lord's like, all of that is as nothing. You go to the book of Revelation and you can see what the Lord will do ultimately in terms of putting down his enemies. And truly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he is Lord both of the dead and the living. Why? Because he died, rose, and revived again. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says the last enemy to be conquered is death. So this is a promise not just of Israel's ultimate redemption goes far beyond that. He's speaking of his redemption of his people throughout every tribe, nation, tongue, people. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't happen without leadership. And so we come to, not only is the Lord going to bless them with increase and bless them with subjugating their enemies, but he's going to bless them with the man of his appointment. See that in verse 23. Zerubbabel is the man, is the immediate one here. On that day, Yahweh says, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares Yahweh and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. He's using Zerubbabel as the one who's standing there as the governor to uh, say, I'm going to use you as a, visual aid of the kind of thing that I'm going to do um, among God's people and God's people in the midst of a hostile world. 
But look at this man here. A signet ring, as he says. Now, I think most of us know, we don't usually use that term, but I think most of us probably figure out what a signet ring is if we don't know already. If you're an authority, this is not something we do all that much anymore these days, but it used to be very common, that a king or a governor or someone else would have a ring or a stamp or a seal that had the engraving of, of his house, his name, some symbol of his kingdom that would be used uh, to, uh, with wax to seal and stamp official documents and that sort of thing, that these were actually from the king and therefore were to be, or from the, the governor or whatever, and therefore were to be given that honor and that credibility as they were read. And he's basically saying to Zerubbabel, you're my, I'm using you as my, my ring. I'm giving you as a gift to my people the fact that you're there and you're allowed to be the one who is uh, over my people here is my promise to the people. You're my seal that the things that I've said to Israel or uh, to, uh, to God's people are going to take place. I don't know. You know, we don't have any hint of how Zerubbabel took that. I'm dying to know. Would love to know what he thought of that. Um, I know if the Lord said this to me, I would be going, I have no idea. I, I, I have no idea how I'm supposed to do that. I don't know what Zerubbabel's response was. But what it says is that uh, to the Lord, um, the, uh, the, a signet ring is that seal that's placed upon precious things, or it can also be the precious object itself. It seems that the Lord is putting his particular love and power and heart upon Zerubbabel. Um, this is a pattern that we see lived out in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, speaking of Christ, Peter says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Essentially, the signet ring is Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who has shaken the nations. Zerubbabel, most of the nations of his day probably never heard of him. But Jesus Christ has shaken the world. And the fact that he was given to us by God as the token, the one precious to God who was given, the only begotten son was given to show his love to the world and that his promises of redemption to those who re uh, repent and call upon his name is true and real because Christ has been given to us. A man chosen by God. I have chosen you, he says, declares Yahweh of hosts. Take a look over at Isaiah chapter 42. Marvelous passage that speak, speaking about the Messiah, the chosen servant of the Lord. Beginning at verse 1 in Isaiah 42, we read this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait 
for his law. And then over in chapter 43 and verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Savior. Zerubbabel is declared to be a signet ring in that particular time, a token of God's blessing upon his people and that he would not fail. Jesus Christ follows in that same pattern. You know, you just, that's a big part of prophecy, as I'm sure most of you are aware, is not just the details of things, but also the patterns that are established of how God works and how he promises all pointing forward to ultimately to the Messiah, which is spoken of here in Isaiah 42. And Jesus Christ fulfills all of those things. We read in Luke chapter 9 and verse 35, um, the, uh, at, uh, the, uh, uh, the same kind of idea that uh, Peter was referring to, a couple of different incidences here. But uh, in Luke chapter 9, a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Something witnessed by all those around. And finally, in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we read this. Actually, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this... He's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I might as well finish the section. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills that pattern of the one chosen by God, the suffering servant who would be exalted and redeem Israel and all those who are united to him by faith. For if you are in Christ, you are heirs according to the promise, Abraham's seed. Um, As Jesus told the Pharisees, the ones who are really Abraham's seed are the one who are renewed and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in him there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, but all are made one in him. Incredible blessings spoken of in these few verses at the end of Haggai. 
incredible blessing that goes far beyond just the building of a building. Yes, we want to build this place. We want to see the, the, the seats full. We want to see the testimony go out far and wide. We want to see all of those external things. Absolutely, we do. But our work here is not about building a name for ourselves. It's about recognizing that God has given us in his son the signet ring of, of his promise that as we are found in him, we are safe. All of this could burn down tomorrow and the church would still go on. We could lose everything here. Walk away with the clothes on our back. We would still be God's children, his body in Christ, whether we had a building or not. Because we have him, we don't need anything else. Israel needed to learn that back then. They needed to learn that they needed their God more than they needed their houses. They needed God even more than they needed the temple. When we look at this, this wonderful little book, yes, we're called upon to make the Lord first in everything that we do and say. That that he, his, the priorities of his house and his presence come before our own temporal concerns. But ultimately, it's not just so that, all right, if I, uh, if I go ahead and fork out a certain portion of my, my uh, income, then he's going to bless me with abundance in all these other temporal ways. Well, I mean, we have promises like that, that he will supply abundantly every need that we have. Absolutely. But it, that's, yes, and we're to do that. But that's not really the point, is it? The point is to know him. Whom to know aright is eternal life. Praise God that he made provision for us to know him. Through our king, through our, that signet ring of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this precious book of Haggai. Help us, Lord, to continually be uh, looking upon our hearts and crying out to you to, to see if there be any wicked way in us. Help us to repent, to turn from it. Lord, let us not be content with external religion, but let us cling to you so that we will know you, love you, serve you, and yes, be blessed by you. Thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who has secured these things because of his unfailing love and his sacrificial um, atonement that we might be covered for our sins. In Christ's name we pray.